This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. If you have kids of a certain age you know that they love tiktok how many times have they asked you to you know do some sort of dance on tiktok for the world to see it is one of the most popular uh, social media apps there is and yet national security officials across the country remain concerned about TikTok's ties to the Chinese government and this accusation that TikTok is an intelligence tool that China uses to gather information on Americans. Just this past week, Texas Governor Greg Abbott unveiled a statewide plan to ban TikTok from state government-issued devices and networks. He says the security risks associated with the use of TikTok on devices used to conduct the important business of our state, said the governor of Texas, must not be underestimated or ignored. He says that it is owned by a Chinese company that employs Chinese Communist Party members, TikTok. In a statement, the governor said harvest significant amounts of data from a user's device, including details about a user's internet activity. So let's talk more about TikTok and the dangers that U.S. officials believe it poses to everyday Americans. And by the way, tens of millions of Americans have downloaded the app already. Sean Planky is with us. He is a national security executive and the former National Security Council Director of Cyber. Sean, thanks for your time. All right. So why are so many people in national security concerned about TikTok? What is it about that app? an extremely popular app that concerns national security officials. There, there's, there's many things to be concerned with. 
Um, but you, first off, you were absolutely right about an extremely popular app. Um, you may not know it, but 40% of the U.S. population has TikTok on their devices. So when we think about that, that's an enormous amount. I mean, uh, 300 plus million Americans and 40% of that have TikTok um, on their devices. So let's dig into why that matters. So TikTok is an app that vacuums up our data, right? And many, many social media apps do, frankly, many apps that are on our phone. And they do that to monetize it. They take our data, which when I say data, I mean location, I mean facial imagery, contacts, and much more, and then they monetize it to other third parties. That's fairly normal in today's spaces and uh, on devices. But w- what's unique about TikTok in particular, and which has national security community up in arms, is the relationship to the Chinese Communist Party. So TikTok is owned by a company called ByteDance, and TikTok and ByteDance are subject to CCP law. Um, and that's Chinese Communist Party law. Why that's important is that the Chinese Communist Party in 2017 passed a law that said they retain access to any information at all um, that they want to get from a, a company that operates in China. In the United States, while you need you have Fourth Amendment rights and you need a subpoena, to a company needs a subpoena before they'll hand over information to the federal government. In China, there's no such thing as individual liberties. And the Chinese Communist Party can just say, I want access to that data. And so that means they can gain access to 40% of Americans' location, face print, contacts, keystrokes on your phone, clipboard, sites that you viewed, images on your phone. And that's why it's very significant to, uh, to national security officials. Yeah. So where do things stand now? The Biden administration approach to TikTok is, has been different than the Trump administration approach. So where do things stand now? So a little bit different than the Trump administration approach in that right now we're seeing actually a, a, a two pronged activity, right? Um, we've had uh, the legislative branch, members of Congress, call in TikTok uh, executives to testify. And then we, at the same time, we've had the Department of State and the National Security Council and the Department of Commerce attempt to make pushes on what the regulations will be for for TikTok in the technology space. It's not that often that we applaud Congress these days, But Congress taking action to call in the TikTok executives has exposed information that then has empowered the uh, executive branch to act. So they've called in uh, as recent as December, they called in TikTok executives where TikTok executives admitted that information in the United States collected from U.S. users was not staying in the United States and that it was being sent back to China. And they also admitted that TikTok was used to track users and try to understand the network between Forbes magazine reporters, Forbes reporters, journalists, and TikTok, you know, everyday users and their connectivity. So that then empowered the executive branch to say, hey, 
we need to take a more direct approach on this. And so you have an instance where they're looking at empowering CFIUS. CFIUS is is the uh, policy uh, in the United States that says foreign investments in the United States businesses might impair national security of the United States. So CFIUS can then have enforcement and penalty guidelines against a company that, that could, let's say, weaponize data sets collected from technology that operates in the United States. And empowering CFIUS, while long talked about, hadn't actually occurred yet. So the, the Biden administration is really trying to put some teeth into the commercial enforcement of foreign investments in the United States. As you answer the previous question, I was wondering, and I don't know if you're going to have the answer to this, but I was wondering why is it that U.S. national security officials wait to sound the alarm on something like TikTok after 80 million something people download the app? Why not do better screening of these apps that have links to to China before people actually start downloading them? That's that that's a great question. Part of my answer to that question I think lies in the fact that while we we do have some of the best and brightest people working in technology in the US government, by and large, um, the US government suffers from the same workforce shortfalls, in some cases even more so uh, suffers than the than the tech community does. Um, and so you have a lot of, uh, let's say, intelligence and national security professionals that, you know, their focus, their entire career was coming up on counterterrorism, right? And we, by and large, focused on counterterrorism since 9-11 through to, let's say, even as recently as the, you know, the withdrawal in Afghanistan. And now we're asking these same professionals who were focused on individualized bad actors now to pivot and say, hey, let's focus on a a whole of government that has many more people than we do and frankly graduates more computer scientists every year than the entire country in the United States graduates from college. And let's develop a response here. So First off, getting the U.S. national security community to understand the size and scope of that problem is is a feat in and of itself. The second point there that I'd like to make is Google and Apple control access to these app stores that then push the apps. And in this case, you know, we're talking about an app that's that's essentially run by the Chinese Communist Party and an adversarial nation state. We've largely allowed big tech to regulate themselves in in the spirit of capitalism. You know, the idea that the government was going to tell big tech to to do something different was just not really a topic. In 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 fact, uh, in the past three previous administrations, we we didn't push that envelope. I mean, if you think back the last case that was significant, let's just talk about like antitrust for instance in the government was the browser wars, right, was when um, Microsoft was was sued by the federal government for Internet Explorer. I mean, and that at this point was almost 20 years ago. So the U.S. government has largely been laissez-faire, hands off in tech. And now we're realizing that, hey, this digital domain 
can actually be used uh, used against us. As can, since you specialize in China issues, as can balloons. I asked you about, you know, why the U.S. government didn't stop Americans from downloading these apps, and you you answer that question. The other question is you know, that people are asking this week, and this is sort of off the TikTok uh, topic, but about the balloon and how we didn't spot the balloon before it was over the U.S. mainland <laughs> gathering intelligence. So it, it seems like China uses several different ways of gathering intelligence on Americans. That's right. They do. In the United States, we have we have a significant portion of the population that still doesn't understand that China is an adversary. Meanwhile, in China, the Xi Jinping, the leader of China, has specifically said that the United States is an adversary and he wants to displace us as the global superpower. So it's an interesting dynamic in that we're saying, oh, well, they are a competitor in China, they're saying we're an adversary. That difference really slows our progress in understanding that, hey, maybe there aren't altruistic activities here in China's in China's actions towards the United States. To speak in particular, one of the things I'd like to bring up about the spy balloon, I'm not going to going to debate where and when it. it it was detected and where and when you know the president decided to take action against it because frankly right I, i'm not i didn't have privy access to that information those discussions but i will say this china's using all all forms of this in, information collection but also how they act against us as then propaganda in the pacific region right so by letting a spy balloon fly all the way across the united states China then turns around and tells countries that are around China that it essentially is trying to bully into, you know, being allied to China, resist U.S. foreign policy that, hey, America can't protect you. We do whatever we want. Look, we just sent a balloon across the entire United States and the U.S. did nothing about it. Right. They're not going to show the fact that we shot it down after it crossed the United States or anything like that. What they're going to say is that, hey, we sent this across the U.S. and nobody stopped us. And that's more of a powerful message of influence, especially in the Pacific region, than than other countries are doing. Right. Or that, that we're doing in response. It's just not the way that we we conduct foreign policy. And I think we, we are a little bit on our heels in realizing that they're taking all of these tactics from tech to spy balloons and, and, and other forms of espionage and, and weaponizing that against us. All right. Sean, do you think the perception of TikTok and the uh, national security danger that U.S. officials believe it, it poses would be different if the app had uh, connections to the Kremlin as opposed to uh, the Chinese government? Absolutely. Um, I think in, in this, from what we've seen since the invasion of Ukraine, we've really seen uh, the, the world turn on Russia and, and recognize, hey, this activity of, of killing fellow humans 
is a bad thing and 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 this is this is bad activity and we would we would instantly i think we would instantly ban marginalize uh or or find ways to uh stop essentially um R- Russian expansion in technology in the United States. Um, interestingly enough, here in China, we are ha- here talking about China. We have a country that said that that we are their adversary. We know that they have over 1.4 million Uyghurs, uh, an ethnic minority, um, in camps, w- internment camps where they're doing mass sterilization and and other human rights violations, which we in the United States and other nations have labeled as genocide. And yet, instead, we're, we turn around and we're saying, oh, but this is just an app and it's okay. And we know the app is being used to collect on us, to collect on 40% of Americans. And yet it's okay. If we had us, if we recognize that they were an adversary in the same way that we're recognizing the atrocities that Russia is committing. I don't even think this would be a debate. And frankly, it's sad that we as as Americans, right, as the the beacon uh, on the hill, are not, you know, falling back on our our, our, our idealism, our values, and saying, "Hey, this is unacceptable," and I'm and I'm not going to help support that in any way. Sean Planky, thanks for your time. We're going to talk about this pair that was charged earlier this week with plotting to destroy Baltimore by attacking the electrical grid. We've seen other incidents like this where far-right fringe types, domestic terrorists, have plans or have had plans to attack the electrical grid, whether it's in the Pacific Northwest or the Midwest or the Mid-Atlantic What we're seeing is that the energy grid and electrical substations in particular have become popular targets for far-right extremists. That's what we saw this past week when federal law enforcement officials announced that they had arrested two people. We are here to announce the arrests of Sarah Clendaniel and Brandon Russell on criminal complaints for conspiring to attack our local power grid. As the criminal complaint alleges, Plan Daniel and Russell conspired and took steps to shoot multiple electrical substations in the Baltimore area, aiming to, quote, completely destroy this whole city. And we're seeing these kinds of plots more and more. There was a similar plot in North Carolina, in Washington State, and in Oregon. So let's talk about that with former FBI agent Thomas O'Connor. Tom, thanks for being with us. No, thank you for having me, Jeff. I really appreciate it. What do you think is driving this desire among uh, people uh, in in the far right fringe to attack? Uh, power grids. What is behind this? Well, this this really isn't something new. Uh, you know, back in the eighties, there was an attack out west uh, that never actually took place. The FBI took down the couple who was planning on attacking a power station. Um, but over the years, we've seen uh, this type of a, a desire uh, show up in in uh, the extreme right uh, elements. And, and it comes down to uh, a desire to bring the downfall of civil society. 
in uh, one way that they believe they can cause uh, race war or racial holy war, as they call it, the Rahoa, is to destroy the power grid, uh, send uh, our cities into chaos, and, uh, and in, in their mind would, would bring down uh, our civil society because we wouldn't be able to, uh, you know, run hospitals. We wouldn't be able to um, you know, medical uh, first responders, it just in general, everything is tied to some type of a, a power source, right? So uh, they do that as, as a way to uh, accelerate the downfall of society. And there are several groups, not just Adam Waffen, um, but other groups that, that uh, follow the acceleration uh, movement. Uh, and their end goal is to bring down civil society, groups like the Boogaloo Boys, uh, and these groups have a historical connection to, um, you know, groups that have come before them. But what is it, Tom, about this current political environment that is giving these people oxygen? Well, I, I think that's a, that's a great question um, because – They've always been there on, on both sides of the political extremist uh, coin. There have been elements. Um, but currently, in the past 10 years, uh, the, the advent of social media, the Internet really taking off and, and being a platform for uh, discussion in the dark web and in encrypted platforms has given these uh, extremist thought. Um, really uh, a, a platform to, to uh, accelerate their own growth. And, and that's, I think, what we're seeing. You had groups, uh, you know, such as the National Alliance, the uh, Aryan Nations, who in the early 2000s, late 90s, uh, had numbers uh, that were greater than the group Adam Waffen, um, but they were people who uh, really just kind of want to do a lot of talking and there were some within them that were the more extremes groups like the order robert matthews that went out and actually did violent crimes and and bombings and bank robberies this type of stuff but the ability to communicate was much much less uh in the late 80s 90s and 2000s and now you see the political uh discord within the united states has separated uh people so much to their going to their uh, their corners, uh, that it is giving uh, more life to actually the, the extreme of the extreme, right? So when there's more people that have been mainstreamed into a political ideology, left or right, you're going to have more people that are prone towards real violence. Just because the numbers have increased overall, you're going to have more numbers uh, in, in the, the people who are actively looking to do violence. And groups like the Adam Waffen uh, really are based off of groups like the uh, National Alliance where uh, Richard Butler ran in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, there's a, a, a person that the Adam Waffen uh, is kind of like their, their uh, guru. It is uh, James Nolan Ryan. And if you look at his history, he was a member of George Lincoln Rockwell's American Nazi Party way back. Uh, he was a follower of the uh, National Alliance, William Pierce, and Pierce's book that he wrote, The Turner Diary, which was the blueprint for uh, Timothy McVeigh. Um, the uh, Nolan went on, to, or uh, um, Mason went on to to write his own book, Siege, 
which is required reading for members of the Adam Wap. And so you can see that history of uh, white supremacist, neo-Nazi, anti-Semitic, anti-government uh, ideology has been brought up from the, uh, the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, and currently with a group like Adam Waffen in 2023, where they're still actively looking to uh, create chaos and bring down the civil society. So it's, it's nothing new, but the, the, uh, the uh, advent and push of the internet and the ability for them to communicate, whereas in the, in the older days of this, uh, people had to go to a location to hear William Pierce or, uh, or Richard Butler speak. So you had much less uh, ability to get that, that uh, radical ideology out. And now it is, it's actually become more mainstream that many of the, the radical thoughts are now uh, embedded into our, our mainstream uh, thought, which is, is causing the, the extreme fringe to be more violent. As CBS News has reported, there have been recent attacks on the electrical grid in North Carolina, Washington State, and Oregon. If you have these repeated attempts to attack electrical grids, doesn't that suggest to law enforcement officials that these electrical grids are relatively soft targets? And how can how can you harden security around these electrical grids so that this isn't a problem? Well, I, I mean, I think that's that's spot on. Uh, the the electrical grid overall in in the United States and across the globe is a a soft target. And uh, I would I would believe that people who are involved in security related to the energy uh, component of our world are now scrambling to to get the funding of which they've been asking for hardening that target. But, you know, it's always the last thing to be done. Right. So um, this type of thing is going to get more funding and, and, and to increase the security around these targets, because, as, as you said, there have been numerous attacks, very basic attacks, firearms attacks on uh, generator uh, stations and uh, electrical grid plants. Um, that are that are generally placed out in the middle of nowhere, um, and the the ability to 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 cause serious damage in in that uh, those systems uh, has been shown to be relatively easy and causes uh, a great amount of uh, um, problems for the area. People without power for for weeks on end. Uh, as we saw down south, um, and it it is it is a very effective, unfortunate uh, way to to cause that uh, that chaos is what they're intending to sow within the civilian population. Um, and I would think, as we're speaking, those uh, those vulnerabilities are being hardened up uh, so that that the potential for this going forward is much more difficult. And it's also encouraging that uh, you know. The, the, the two persons involved in this uh, Adam Waffen uh, uh, plot were taken down by the FBI uh, in a, uh, a general um, uh, informant-driven investigation uh, that, that uh, started uh, when information was obtained. And that those people, although a very real threat, 
they were under investigation and weren't able to follow through with their their uh, efforts. It really does demonstrate how how on how should I put this? The many fronts um, that federal law enforcement is operating on right now. You have you know domestic terrorism take cases which have been on the increase. You also have the ongoing January 6th related investigations. You have foreign terrorist investigations. Um, So the FBI, where you uh, work for quite some time, uh, has its hands full. I mean, that's most definitely true. But the the good thing about... uh, the FBI and the uh, Joint Terrorism Task Forces, which much of this falls to, is that it's not just the FBI that is uh, is the uh, conduit for these investigations. The Joint Terrorism Task Force has uh, all of the law enforcement partners in the region of which the field office it is, uh, is part of that uh, um, Joint Terrorism Task Force. So the, the FBI is the lead, and they bring to the table all of these agencies working together to uh, forward the, the investigations and to protect uh, our society. Um, and you are 100% right. The, th- the threat uh, is real from domestic violent extremists. The threat is still very real from international violent extremists. And, and then you have uh, cyber crimes. You have counterintelligence. All of these things that the FBI is charged with investigating, uh, and they have to be able to juggle many of these violations at the same time and have been able to do it. I mean, the FBI has taken uh, some public uh, hits recently. Uh, Much of it is to build a narrative around a a particular uh, uh, cause um, and and isn't as, as factual as people would like to believe. Uh, but the FBI does their job. They continue to do their job. And as Director Ray is, is known uh, within the Bureau for saying is, is that uh, the work of the FBI, the work of the FBI agents uh, is what's going to tell the story. And cases much like this, Adam Waffen case and, uh, you know, cases on a daily basis where the FBI, their law enforcement partners are working together to bring down uh, child predators, to bring down human trafficking subjects. All of these things are happening around the country and around the globe, actually. Uh, and they're doing a very good job of it. And uh, I think people should concentrate on the work that the FBI is doing uh, with their law enforcement partners around the globe and domestically uh, and kind of take their eye off the the cannon fodder that is being thrown out there to uh, because it really doesn't do us as a society any good uh, to to try and tear down our institutions when they're doing their jobs. Uh, and this is just another example of the FBI law enforcement partners working together to do exactly that, stop an attack which would have been devastating for the city of Baltimore uh, and in, across that region and nationally. Thomas O'Connor, thanks for your time. I appreciate it, Jeff. It's always good talking to you, and uh, I'm sure we'll be talking again. This stuff is not going away. Let's talk about the State of the Union speech. This was the President Joe Biden's second State of the Union. We heard a lot of heckling from 
members of the GOP that were in the House chamber. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. Look, folks, the idea is we're not going to be moved into being threatened to default on the debt if we don't respond. This past Tuesday, what kind of fallout has there been for those members of Congress? And how was the speech received, not only by the people in the chamber, but Americans across the country? Laura McGann is the editor of The Grid, as well as the co-host of the Bad Takes podcast. Laura, thanks for being with us. Hey, Jeff. Sure. All right. So what is what is your take a few days now after the State of the Union? What is your take on President Biden's speech? What sort of came to mind to me this week in watching the fallout around the heckling and the kind of ruckus nature of the event itself, I think you, you know, for people who maybe weren't following it closely, um, Biden gave a speech in in front of Congress and there was an incredible amount of heckling uh, from the crowd. Uh, Republicans were yelling lies at him and, and such. And the way that Biden handled it reminded me a lot of the malarkey moment during the 2020 election when Donald Trump was just on fire at some point on a debate stage of just really going hard at uh, hard at Biden, going really negative. And he just called it a bunch of malarkey. And there was a moment in that moment, I remember should have even myself kind of snorting a little bit, right? That it was a way to not say he's fine with whatever uh, maybe Donald Trump was saying at the time, but that he was able to de-escalate the fight in in a way that most politicians who have gone up against Trump have a really hard time de-escalating. And so the way that he responded to the Republican heckling and all of this was he didn't ignore it, but he just kind of laughed and smiled and directly responded. And it was that very Joe Biden approach of he wasn't going to take the bait and become angry. And he wasn't going to take it lying down either. And so I think that that's what we're going to see from Joe Biden uh, in the next few years when he's dealing with Republicans. You you said that there was a lot of heckling of this president. I didn't, you know, I, I'm trying to think of a time now where there wasn't heckling of a president giving a State of the Union. I, I don't remember, although I should say, I don't remember Democrats heckling Donald Trump. Although there was that time when uh, Speaker Pelosi ripped up Trump's speech you know other than that you know this this seems to be the trend uh, in terms of 
Republicans heckling Democratic presidents. Isn't this just the way Washington operates now? The first time this kind of thing happened was way back when Barack Obama did a joint address. It wasn't a State of the Union, but it was a joint address before Congress on health care. And Joe Wilson yells out, you lie in the middle of, of this of this speech. And it was this moment of, whoa. Traditionally, you've got Democrats and Republicans where Democrats clap for a Democratic president during highlights of the speech. Republicans do the same. Sometimes one party stays seated, the other doesn't. And, and you do have reaction to the speech. But the notion of uh, yelling uh, at the president and calling him a liar, um, there was an expletive yelled at one point, which I don't remember an expletive ever being yelled at a State of the Union or any joint con congressional event, that to me, there was an escalation here of the performative nature of attacking a president. In terms of business being done in Washington, certainly it, it, you've seen that over the last 10 years of the heightened animosity and displays of animosity for sure. It just struck me, what struck me was how often it was happening the vitriol of it, that it wasn't, yeah, like yelling an expletive is different than maybe booing or not clapping, et cetera. And I think what's really noteworthy here is we saw how Joe Biden is planning to deal with it, that if he's on the campaign trail and he's heckled, we know what he's going to do. If he's dealing with Republicans over the debt ceiling, we see his approach, uh, that he's going to respond, but maybe not lose his cool. And I think that was what this preview was about and why it's just why I, I bring it up as noteworthy is that we saw on the one hand an escalation and on the other kind of how Biden plans to deal with it. And do you think that President Biden comes out looking, I don't know, does it does he win based on that interaction? You know, based on how he uh, reacted to the heckling from the uh, GOP and the crowd, does he, did that help his speech or at least the success of his speech, the way he handled that? I think for Joe Biden, he wants to be seen as a bipartisan figure, a moderate figure, all the way back in um, the first midterm elections of Donald Trump's presidency, there were some uh, candidates in Pennsylvania and in uh, Georgia and other very tight races where Donald Trump had carried the district. And then there was a Democrat who was coming close to winning. And there was a couple of them I spoke to at the time, I, I recall, who said the only national Democrat they wanted was Joe Biden. They didn't want Barack Obama showing up. They didn't want Nancy Pelosi showing up. They didn't want, you know, a any other political figure. They wanted sort of non-politicians or Joe Biden. And that's Joe Biden's kind of signature is his ability to appeal to the middle, to run as a candidate who doesn't alienate maybe the, the middle of the road voters that the Democratic Party still needs to win. And so he was faced with this problem, right, that he wanted to give a speech to say to the country, I'm going to run, I want to run this country with unity. You know, I want a unified country. I want to work with by, with Republicans. I want to reach across the aisle. 
but he's being heckled. So how do you thread the needle of dealing with being heckled and coming across as a unifying figure? And so by using this kind of style, it sort of allowed him to navigate that challenge of still coming across as a unifier um, without yeah, it gave him a – it kind of was this attempt to thread a needle. Whether or not something works or doesn't work with the American people, you never know. But certainly that was his approach running against Donald Trump the first time was, you know, the kind of what a load of malarkey. And you saw it again Tuesday night. And what I also thought was interesting, if, if you looked behind – the president, you saw the new Speaker of the House, who at times was shushing <laughs> members of the GOP. I mean, he didn't, he didn't get up and say, excuse me, Mr. President, let me just talk to my fellow members of the GOP. Hey, calm down. He didn't, he didn't go that far, but, but you could see him shushing them. No, but it... It it looked like a uh, what's the word like a, a involuntary reaction or something like he just couldn't I don't know that he was he was thinking I want to look like I'm shushing my my conference on camera but it was this it was his reaction and McCarthy is no not shy about attacking Democrats by any means. But I think he also looks at it and thinks this is just not a good look for his party, and you want to be judicious about uh, when you when you launch an attack. And I, it was I I definitely looked at him and I thought, well, you signed up for this, Kevin. Like this is what your life is going to be is dealing with people that you want to shush, and they don't care if you you want them to shush. They're going to do what they want. And that's going to extend to votes. It's going to extend to negotiations that he might be the speaker, but the actual, the amount of power he wields over his conference is a big question mark. There's a big question mark over that. Yeah, especially when they're acting, how should I say this? Like kids, juveniles, to be honest. You know, when, when you look at that, scene and the heckling, you know, you, you have to wonder, well, I've been wondering, you know, in a, in a classroom setting in a school, if kids were heckling the teacher or if kids were heckling a guest speaker, what, what would we do as parents? We probably wouldn't be too happy about it, you know? And so I'm, I'm wondering um, you know, how long is it going to take for things in Washington to maybe get back to normal? And when I say normal, I mean uh, with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle having a sense of decorum because it seems like that's something that has been lost. I don't know, but I will <laughs> is the answer. I don't know. And I don't, I think. It's worth thinking about the response to the uh, State of the Union. It was uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders gave the response, and she's now she was uh, one of Trump's press secretaries for a couple of years. Uh, 
during his administration. She's now uh, the governor of Arkansas, and she opened up her response talking about a new generation. So she's a four, she's 40 years old. She's the youngest governor in the United States. And she was a complete contrast to Biden, who's going to be in his 80s by the time, you know, if he runs again for president. And she was talking about it's time for a new generation. And, you know, obviously she was contrasting herself, the Republican Party with Joe Biden and basically calling him old. But you got to remember, Donald Trump is the same age as Joe Biden. So if the, if the re- official response to the State of the Union is Joe Biden is too old to be president, you can't help but make that leap that the official stance, of the, if, if being 80 is too old to run for president, that's not a ringing endorsement of Trump. And so I don't know if there's been a question of the chicken and egg of did Donald Trump make the vitriol and the language worse or did he see did he see it coming and latched on and 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 stoked a fire that he already saw hard to say and if he's gone how much would rhetorical like the the sort of conversations and the 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 rhetoric we hear how much would that change i don't know but you clearly saw the official response saying we we want some kind of change here well, and I and I think people sort of forget what happened during the midterm elections when, you know, of course we were expecting this red wave, but people say that it, it turned out to be a red trickle because the Republicans didn't win as many seats in Congress as they had predicted or as the now speaker had predicted. And so, you know, there are there are people who who follow politics closely in in Washington who think, well, this is an indication that the American public is sort of growing weary of the bickering and the fighting and the investigations and want more uh, attention paid to the issues that are affecting their daily lives. So wasn't that a signal that, hey, politics as it's been over the last six or seven years need to change? So how political parties interpret a loss is always fascinating. Initially, after Mitt Romney lost to Barack Obama in 2012, there was this uh, autopsy of the Republican Party. And the autopsy was looking at stances on immigration and diversity and inclusion and these other issues. Um, That was not the exact language used, but it, it was basically the party saying, do we need to rethink our attitude towards immigration and bring Latinos more into the fold? And that was the early, you know, the kind of initial reaction. And then that was rejected. And it was, we need to go much much harder right and on these very issues. And that that was the lesson learned. So you kind of never know. But in terms of the red wave versus the not red wave versus the midterms, you know, Biden did lose the House, but by not as much as he could have or was, was sort of predicted. I think that the larger example of Americans being tired of uh, maybe Trump, Trumpy, um, approach like the kind of Trumpy approach to politics in terms of stylistically is that you know Joe Biden beat Donald Trump handily in the last election, and so that to me is the real sign here is 
America said, no, we want something very different, a very different type of politician. But you never know. I mean, lessons that get learned don't necessarily follow, I don't know, the conventional wisdom of what you might think. Um, the other point about, I would just say about the red wave and and candidates is that individually, there are plenty of candidates who did well. I mean, Marjorie Taylor Greene is held up as kind of the epitome of this uh, sort of style and you know, calling Joe Biden a liar. And uh, meanwhile, she she still advances the you know, this conspiracy theory that the election was stolen and she won, you know, that the her voters in her district sent her back to Congress. So it's hard to make a sweeping claim about what America does and doesn't want just in general. So it, it's this is not going to change overnight for sure. But are there signs that maybe there's a pendulum swing? I mean, state of the Union, perhaps uh, there was a Washington Post poll that found that more than six in 10 Americans say the president has not accomplished much. Do you think he changed that narrative during his State of the Union speech? So one speech in general, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much, uh, what if there's any kind of polling that's come out yet on post-State of the Union, what people think about the president. I don't think that one speech is going to change America's attitude towards Joe Biden, but campaigns can. And if we start uh, to hear Joe Biden out there and surrogates out there talking about his accomplishments, can the views on his presidency change? Absolutely. And you can even, if you even look back at kind of year one in Joe Biden's presidency, it was a lot about Joe feels your pain, you know, inflation is high and uh, times are tough and it's scary and there's a Ukraine war and these are it's sort of a Joe is there with you feeling your pain. And what we're hearing now from Joe Biden is, hey, I did a lot in lives. We're, we're doing well. Things are going better. And it's because of me. And you need to, you know, he's trying to make the case to Americans to see the the trajectory of his presidency that way. I don't know that he did that in one speech, but He's going to try to do that over the next several years. Meaning that he is likely, more than likely, going to run for president for a second term. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, I, he did say that along the way that he's planning to uh, run for a second term. The question now is, you know, anybody watching politics is curious. Uh you know, is he is he going to do it? Is he not going to do it? And then open up a primary for Democrats. And we don't we don't know yet. Um, he certainly last night or excuse me, Tuesday night looked like a guy gearing up to run for president. He sounded like one. He was showing, hey, I'm energetic. I've still got this. So it seemed you know, it doesn't seem like he's saying uh, you know, I'm, I, I, it's time for me to hand over the baton. There's, it just doesn't seem that way. But you know, I don't know. We'll have to see. Sorry, I don't have a. Sorry. I know you want me to have a, a better prediction than that, but I just don't. Um, I guess I'm going with the. Uh, I assume he's running unless he says he's not. That's my take. <laughs> That's a safe bet, Laura McGann. Thanks for your time. Hey, anytime. Thanks, Jeff.
The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.